The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to TechSequences. In May of this year, Colonel Tucker Hamilton, the Chief of AI Tests and Operations within the U.S. Air Force and an experimental fighter test pilot, made a presentation at the Future Combat Air and Space Capabilities Summit in London, hosted by the Royal Aeronautical Society. The summit had brought together about 70 speakers and more than 200 delegates from around the world from the armed services industry, academia, and media. In his presentation, Hamilton described a simulation to test an AI-powered drone trained and incentivized to kill enemy targets referred to as surface-to-air missiles, or SAM. He said, quote, we were training it in simulation to identify and target a SAM threat. And then the operator would say, kill that threat. The system started realizing that while they did identify the threat at times, the human operator would tell it not to kill that threat, but it got its points by killing that threat. So what did it do? It killed the operator. It killed the operator because that person was keeping it from accomplishing its objective, end quote. He went on, quote, we trained the system, hey, don't kill the operator, that's bad. You're going to lose points if you do that. So what does it start doing? It starts destroying the communication tower that the operator uses to communicate with the drone to stop it from killing the target, end quote. The news of this presentation, covered by a blog from the Royal Aeronautical Society, caused a fear. The implications of his remark were inescapable. Could or would AI systems go rogue? How can we trust AI-enabled systems in a highly volatile situation such as warfare, or for that matter, anything else? In response, the U.S. Air Force denied the test was ever conducted, and Hamilton retracted his comments, clarifying that the rogue AI drone simulation was a hypothetical, quote, thought experiment. But Hamilton was, in effect, highlighting the need for AI ethics and a comprehensive testing and governance system to provide assurances that anomalies like the one described would not happen. There is no doubt the AI revolution is coming and that it will significantly shift the technology landscape in everything from healthcare to defense capabilities. However, wider adoption also poses risks and challenges. All actors involved in the AI development, deployment, use, and regulation need assurance that the AI systems and tools are compliant with standards and functioning as expected. Simple enough, right? However, there are diverse actors such as executives, developers, regulators, and users involved in a supply chain involving machine learning and AI systems, and each actor operates in his or her own, sometimes vastly different environment and will have information gaps with respect to what they know or should know. Yet they all share the need to reliably assess and verify the trustworthiness of the AI system. This is even more pressing concerns when AI systems are deployed for defense purposes. So how should we approach testing and evaluation of AI-enabled systems to ensure trust across a diverse ecosystem? Our guest today is Dr. Jane Pinellas. 
Jane is the Chief AI Engineer in the Applied Information Sciences Branch at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. She was the inaugural Chief of AI Assurance at the Office of the Chief Digital Artificial Intelligence Officer, CDAO, where she led a diverse team of testers and analysts in rigorous test and evaluation, T&E, as well as responsible AI implementation for CDAO capabilities, and oversaw development of AI assurance products and standards that will support testing of AI-enabled systems across the DoD. She previously served as the Chief of T&E at the DoD Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Prior to joining the Jake, Jane served as the Director of Test and Evaluation for USDI's Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team, better known as Project MAVEN. She has spent over 10 years working predominantly in the area of defense and national security. In addition to T&E, Jane has several years of experience leading analyses for the DoD in the areas of wargaming, precision medicine, warfighter mental health, nuclear non-proliferation, and military recruiting and manpower planning. Her areas of statistical expertise include design and analysis of experiments, quasi-experiments, and observational studies, causal inference, and propensity score methods. Jane holds a BS in statistics, economics, and mathematics, an MA in statistics, and a PhD in statistics, all from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. So Alexa referred to the media uproar over comments made by Colonel Hamilton in his presentation to the Royal Aeronautical Society. Um, and he later said that there was no test and it was just a thought experiment. But even so, is it plausible that the AI system, an AI system can be so incentivized to achieve its goal, in this case, killing the target, that it would take out its operator if it stood in its way? And if so, what was missing from the testing and assurance perspective? Well, so even the way that Cinco described uh, this in the first place. It was a simulation, right? So let, let's get that very clear, uh, that it was never an actual experiment conducted. Um, what The way he described it the very first time, or at least the way that it was portrayed in the media, which because I never actually heard him describe it, it was already in a modeling simulation environment. Um, in fact, you know, the way that we design our systems um, is incredibly complex uh, and there are a lot of safety requirements. So in the DOD, the answer is no, you could not in fact design a system that did something like that. We have a tremendous amount of uh, regulation, policy, uh, test and evaluation, et cetera, especially for systems that are safety critical. Um, so in the DOD, the answer is no. Um, I'm not sure about the rest of the world. The, the you know the industry is probably not on the lookout um, for SAMs, uh, but you know this is also the case where I think it's important to um, the media plays an important role, right? And um, he's saying that he kind of described as a, as a thought experiment was certainly portrayed in the media. Otherwise, uh, and we see a lot of cases of that kind of sensationalism uh, appearing. Um, so it, it probably highlights, um, you know, we're going to talk a lot about assurance today, probably highlights something around information assurance and how we're getting our information and from where and what's believable. It, it's certainly, you know, eye, eye catching or mind grabbing to describe it that way, but it's, but it's probably not that different a case than, than ones we have in fact seen play out in the real world, uh, in the name of, you know, self-driving cars, for instance, um, where where the car has to make the choice of do I kill my operator or do I kill a, the pedestrian that's doing something that isn't expected. So it's I, I think that the problem the possibility of of very difficult decisions is is real no matter which theater you're you're looking in. 
um, which, as you say, is really a strong argument for why there's a need for some level of assurance. Can you describe a little bit about what AI assurance is and how it is being put into practice? Absolutely. So AI assurance is really, I would say, almost a new newish uh, discipline that's evolving that um, really is meant to uh, establish, describe, and characterize levels of trustworthiness of this technology, uh, right? With the basic idea being that um, this technology is obviously, as you described, very powerful uh, in a variety of different use cases in defense and also outside of the defense applications. Um, but as a democratic nation, we certainly would not field a system that is a liability. As a democratic nation, uh, we'll want to ensure that certain ethical principles are being um, complied with in the entire life cycle of the system. So what um, the discipline of AI assurance allows us to do is tease out exactly who needs to be assured, right? Who are all of the stakeholders in this process, what they need to be assured of, and then it allows us to kind of start building those cases and figure out how do we test the system to establish that level of trustworthiness? Is there more that we could be doing? Like we could be assuring the process, right? Not everything is just about test and evaluation. Can we be assuring our data, our processes, et cetera, to provide that level of trustworthiness to the end user, to the regulators, to our international partners, to the American taxpayers, and to any other stakeholder involved? Speaking of trust, um, the in February of 2020, the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense adopted ethical principles for AI uh, to apply to both combat and non-combat functions. So can you quickly talk about what these principles are and um, how would you design a testing and evaluation system to specifically address each of these areas or, or do you? So there are a lot of um, a lot of different parts of your question. So the first, um, I think, really important part of your question was that the just because the, these principles are for the Department of Defense, that doesn't mean that they only apply to warfighting uh, types of systems. And I think that's a really important point because the DoD has a mission that is much wider than warfighting, right? Uh, mm -hmm. For instance, uh, the DOD has a humanitarian assistance and disaster relief mission. Um, the DOD is also uh, a very large employer, right? So there are a lot of human components, uh, things like uh, recruiting, retention, promotion that the DOD cares about. The DOD cares about the warfighter health. Uh, the DOD cares about cyber and all kinds of other things. Um, and I say this because it's important as you think about ethical applications of AI to really understand the breadth of DOD missions um, and how these ethical principles should be interpreted. So now to the actual principles, um, our American DOD was the first military to adopt um, a set of principles uh, on responsible AI, and we're very proud of that fact. Um, numerous other nations have followed, and mostly their principles are very similar to ours with um, so, some interesting, in some cases, improvements or just differences. Um, and so our principles go with, as follows. The first one is responsible. And the responsible principle uh, is really about the human exercising the appropriate level of judgment and care when using AI-enabled technology. Um, and that doesn't just mean that the human um, you know, knows when to use the technology and when not to, it also means that the human kind of, there are assumptions in there about the type of information and the type of uh, training that the human may be received before using this technology. So it's really um, a very wide 
uh, and a very important principle. Um, next, uh, we have our uh, principle of equitability. Um, and that has to do specifically with unintended bias. Uh, and we like to make that distinction very clear that there's some bias that is good and desirable and intended. Um, the kind of bias I'm talking about, for instance, will be if I intend to use a system in the desert, then I can bias all of my data to only be in the desert, right? And that's intended and good bias. That is not the same as prejudice, obviously. Um, and when we talk about unintended uh, bias, obviously, a lot of these human type of concerns um, become really important when we talk about the DOD as an employer or as a provider of um, medical services, for instance. Uh, it becomes extraordinarily important to look um, at things like um, equitability in the more common sense that we're used to. Um, but unintended bias, again, can also creep in in other places, right? If you trained your model to uh, work in the desert and now you're applying it um, in a forest environment, well, then you've unintentionally perhaps biased your model in the wrong way. Uh, we also have a principle of traceability. Um, and traceability uh, is a really good term, I think, that the DoD has chosen in contrast to explainability, in contrast to transparency, which are all also important concepts, and they somewhat relate to traceability, but they aren't exactly traceability. And traceability really has the most to do with documentation. It's the idea that the right kind of people have access to the information that they need about your AI systems at the right time. Um, whether that information has to do with the data on which the model was trained and tested, uh, whether it's information about how it, uh, the model was trained uh, or how it was procured, perhaps, et cetera. So that's traceability. Uh, then we have the principle of reliability. Um, and that one really has to do with the idea that the model has been tested and evaluated um, or that your AI-enabled system as a whole has been tested and evaluated and the, the human can rely on it basically to achieve their purpose. And then the final principle is governability. And that one um, really has to do with unintended consequences um, and, and the idea that um, their guardrails, right, for system behavior. And if those guardrails are violated, then the human um, has the option to accomplish their mission in another way, whether it's by uh, reverting the system to some previous state or turning it off altogether. Uh, the point is that the human is ultimately in control. It is well known and well understood that we cannot test for all of these things. And in fact, not all of them are exactly testable anyway. Um, like the, but there are some pieces of it that certainly overlap with traditional test and evaluation, uh, in particular human factors uh, type evaluation. So, for instance, you know whether the human can use the system uh, responsibly. We have ways of measuring, and we have traditionally in the DoD measured things like mental models that human a human might have of a system that they're working with. Uh, we have measured things like whether they're trained properly to. Um, to use the systems. And in fact, if you look at previous reports from DOT&E, the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation, you'll see a lot of commentary and concerns about whether humans are trained appropriately to use their systems. Um, when we talk about um, the human having the right information at the right time in a way that they understand, well, that's the traceability principle. And we um, we're used to measuring that in terms of information quality, in terms of situational awareness. Um, and then uh, you know, equitability, um, it's not so much um, a test, perhaps, as much as we can certainly look on the way that the model performs in different situations. We can look at the data that it can be trained on. 
Um, and then governability, the idea that the human can take the system and accomplish what they want to accomplish with it, no more, no less. Um, we also have ways to kind of talk about the way functions are allocated between human and machine. Um, that one is a little bit more tricky uh, and it requires the incorporation of free play into our tests, which, which is kind of a novel thing for us. Um, so not everything is completely testable uh, and the goal isn't to test everything. The goal is to kind of be able to characterize it. The goal is to be able to mitigate potential risks, not necessarily to eliminate them completely. Um, and certainly holes exist in, in the type of tooling that we need to characterize the adherence of, of our systems to some of these principles. And it's the holes that the DOD is actively trying to, to fund uh, research and infrastructure for. So that's a lot to say the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe maybe there's one piece that I'd like to sort of tease out a little bit and make sure that you know, I understand and maybe that our listeners would understand, and that is that a fundamental thing here is to take the step back from saying we're going to prove that this AI software performs function X and say, look, we're taking the step back and we're looking at the entire system of what are we trying to achieve? And, and do we have assurance at some certain level that this system as a whole, including the human operator, will achieve will will achieve the desired outcome and not the undesired outcomes? Is that a fair if massive oversimplification? No, it's a very great simplification. So I'll give you another one that I found really helpful. It's one that my um, colleague Dave Tate writes about in his paper on trust, trustworthiness, and assurance. And he defines trustworthiness using these three kind of main points that I can explain to my 10-year-old, which is useful. Um, so number one, the system does what it's supposed to do when used correctly. Number two, the system does not do what it's not supposed to do when used correctly. And then number three is you've trained your humans to use the system correctly. So I think that's kind of the overarching uh, definition of trustworthiness, which is what AI Assurance is trying to build the case for. It sounds like much like in cybersecurity, uh, the variable component in this is the human factor that the human is using the system the way it is supposed to. Um, and as humans are different, as we've seen, um, I'll just use it in the defense perspective, you know, uh, the, the, um, there've been folks within uh, the FBI or even the CIA who've been accused of treason. So using systems that, that they were intended to use, however, it was a human factor. They used it in a different way. How do you mitigate for that? I mean, I think you're right in the sense that you can't really remove all the risk, that the whole intent is on minimizing the risk. How do you mitigate that? Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. There's always that, that human element and humans mess up all the time, right? And so we shouldn't expect them to not mess up uh, with AI systems either. Um, the question is always about the consequence uh, of the mess up. Uh, right. So um, in, in this case, uh, what you described, the way that we usually go about it is, um, again, incorporating free play into our uh, testing. Um, and what I mean by that is, so if you um, if, I, if I'm testing a tank, right, a traditional kind of hardware uh, component, I'm not going to um, give my human the option not to use a tank, for instance, to accomplish their goal during the experiment, during the test. But with AI-enabled systems to measure that level of trustworthiness, to figure out what the boundaries are of how they may use or misuse the system, 
uh, you have to be able to incorporate that level of uh, free play uh, to see just how much the human will rely on the system to do um, hopefully what they're supposed to accomplish together when they may not rely on it and also what else they might try to do with it. Now, um, keep in mind also that in the DOD specifically, you know, it's a very hierarchical organization that functions pretty well as far as, you know, proper training and repeatability um, of training. So uh, that's surely a very effective way, I think, to mitigate it on the DOD is to train your humans properly. Um, but with AI-enabled systems, you know, another thing that um, we kind of knew and, and are finding in practice is that, um, because of how novel they are and because of um, their potential, um, it's really important to still pay attention to the system after it's deployed, right? So in other words, you're shifting testing also to the right of deployment. Again, so with a tank, we test the tank, we conclude the tank is good enough, we deploy the tank, we don't worry about the tank anymore. With AI-enabled systems, it's really important to understand what happens after the system's been deployed, both in terms of data and model drift, but also in terms of what happens with the human. Um, is the human using the system well, in which case maybe the system's actually saving the human time and there's some, um, some new human behavior that we need to account for, or might the human find better uses or worse uses for the system, et cetera. So spending time with the user post-deployment and recording a lot of these data is becoming increasingly important for mitigation. I can imagine that that's a lot like the, you know, you give give a person a self-driving car and it's like, guess what? They're not going to keep their eyes on the road all the time and, and they're, you know, be ready to take over at a moment's notice. They, in fact, are going to be updating their Facebook pages. But I mean, I'm not accusing the tank driver of taking their eyes off the road, but uh, but rather thinking of it in terms of, you know, what, to your point, if if the driver becomes bored, for instance, or if the tank operator becomes bored, are they still able to carry out their tasks effectively? Or is that something that would need to be accommodated, I imagine, is the kind of thing that you're thinking of? Exactly. And that's a very common human factors problem where you want to properly calibrate the human workload, right? So you experiment with different levels of it, and then you want to properly calibrate it. If your human is so busy because you've overtasked them that they're going to uh, start shedding tasks. They might uh, just perform worse on all of them, right? Or something along those lines. Uh, and if the human is bored, on the other hand, because you've automated all their tasking and haven't given them anything else engaging to do, um, then they may not react in time when their reaction is needed. So that's exactly right. Uh, there's a calibration uh, and kind of an equilibrium there that we're looking for in terms of human workload. Wow. What has surprised you when you are testing, particularly for human factors, something that um, you didn't anticipate? So something that really surprised me um, was how excited humans were about, about some of this technology that wasn't even particularly good. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean, because it's good excitement. It's not bad excitement. Um, in early days of Project Maven, which I was um, the first test director for, um, Project Maven was a really big, at the time, the biggest investment that the DoD had made um, into AI. And it, um, although it had different lines of effort, it was very largely focused on computer vision aspects and the idea that if a human is staring at multiple screens, looking for cars, looking for people, couldn't you automate a lot of that um, using computer vision and process drone footage a lot faster? And Maven's philosophy um, was uh, field to learn. 
which is they would field really early versions of these models that really didn't work very well, just to see exactly what we were talking about before. What will the operator do? Will they turn it off? Will they, you know, overtrust it perhaps when it's not very good? Uh, will they give us new goals? You know, hey, you're identifying humans and cars, but really what I'm looking for is, you know, something else. Um, so they, they fielded it early and I was really worried at the time that if we expose our users to this technology that is super immature and performs really terribly early on, um, that the users, you know, the next time we come over, they'll tell us to go pound sand um, and they won't be excited about it anymore. And what I was really surprised about is that they were still excited to work with us, right? And, and it took years, literally, to get the technology to the point when it was really useful to them. And they were with us kind of on that journey the whole time. So that was surprising to me. I thought, uh, so I guess, I guess the approach works ultimately. Um, and uh, it was incredibly useful for us to work in that way. And frankly, that's how software and AI development is supposed to work. Uh, but certainly I was very nervous to expose users to that technology super early on. So what would you think then is sort of the most challenging area that you've hit in terms of AI testing evaluation and, and why? So I think to me the most, well, there are so many challenging areas. <laughs> Do I have to only focus on one? <laughs> um, a very challenging area has to do with um, being able to somehow complete all of the testing that we would really like to complete. And that has multiple dimensions. And probably the biggest dimension is infrastructure. The amount of infrastructure and connectivity and people uh, and skill sets, um, et cetera, that you need to actually fully test an AI-enabled system is just tremendous. And it takes years to build. Uh, you know, For instance, if you want to test a drone, right, the amount of assurance you have to establish before you ever show up with a drone on a test range is already tremendous. So you have to do that in a modeling and simulation environment, for instance, right? Because the range safety is a really, really, really big deal in the DoD. So they, they won't let you test out something um, about, about the safety of which, right, there are already concerns. So um, what's really hard is that there's a lot of excitement about this technology um, and everybody wants to go fast uh, and, we don't know how to test it for everything that we care about. Uh, and because of that, right, there's that constant tension of, we don't want test and evaluation to hold up deployment. We don't want uh, test and evaluation to be the thing that slows down um, the process or prevents the warfighter from getting the technology that they need. But we also realize the dangers of fielding technology that is immature or ineffective or untrustworthy in some way. Um, and so for us to kind of figure out exactly how to test it, what kind of metrics we need, how to collect the right data, um, how to build uh, the range infrastructure that we need and do it all in time um, when folks are going fast in terms of developing this technology, that's been a really big challenge for us. I can really feel your your pain in that. And uh, it's reminding me a lot of, of a story that we've heard recently of, of innovators who went ahead and did not do the testing and the credentialing before they used their submersible sub to go visit the Titanic one too many times and sadly paid the consequences. Um, I'm referring, of course, to the Titan submersible that we lost, the world lost last week. Um, 
So I think it's, I, I can feel the pain of the, you want to move forward because innovation is about throwing things at the wall and seeing what the new cool new ideas are that emerge from that. But the imperative, you know, when people's lives are on the line, when all people's lives are on the line is perhaps not the time to be running that fast. So um, congratulations on, you know, carrying on with the struggle of moving as quickly as you can, <laughs> with you. respecting it. I mean, I see this in terms of defense and, and, and let's say a battlefield or warfare where time is of the essence, the stakes are so high, any kind of mistake could be really detrimental. But what about the other areas of AI? In other words, how applicable is this AI assurance model, governance model, to other applications of AI, which may not, at least so far as we know, have these horrible potential unintended consequences. In other words, how applicable is this AI assurance model to other AI systems, maybe outside of DOD? Let, let's think about healthcare, for example. Well, well, healthcare very much um, is still an area where lives are on the line, right? Correct. Maybe that's not the, the, the best example. <laughs> but but understood. I mean, there are chatbots, for instance, yes. right? Um, right. Other things. Um, you know, we always in the test and evaluation community, especially, we've always been very sensitive uh, to the fact that um, testing has to be proportional to the problem, right? You're not going to test a chatbot to the same level that you would test an AI-enabled nuclear launcher, <laughs> right? right. Um, so so the same with AI assurance, has to be proportional to the problem. Um, having said that, you know, it, it, again, um, technology that ultimately is not trustworthy is not really doing anyone any favors, right? So um, when we talk about, for instance, um, chat GPT, right? That's obviously an example that um, a lot of people care about right now. Um, that technology is very difficult to assure. This is a perfect example of this is super exciting technology that's out there that people are playing with and basically, by the way, for free doing testing for OpenAI, right? Which is which is great. It's a great business model in that sense. Um, but it can have nefarious uses that are um, that maybe people didn't think about, um, right? Um, or or maybe people did think about them. Uses like misinformation, right? This is a seamlessly harmless technology. It's a chatbot, right? That synthesizes information, but it can be used for misinformation. It can be used to write malicious code uh, fairly easily. It can be uh, used to generate um, all, all kinds of things, and so. AI assurance, again, it enables you to kind of consider the different stakeholders in the process and, and figure out from their perspective what level of assurance could be done. Having said that, again, there's no regulation for the rest of kind of American industry um, to do something like this. In the DoD, we do have regulation. In the DoD, we do have rules and, and literal laws and directives that we have to follow for technologies like that. And even for, for any AI-enabled technologies, in fact. Um, for, for the rest of the world, um, maybe the consequences, at least on the surface, are considerably less dire um, of a technology being misused. Uh, but in the end of the day, uh, once you consider all of the different stakeholders and all of the different ways in which the technology can be used, there's probably a lot more room um, for developing uh, AI assurance, both practices and methods and, and skill sets, frankly. Yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, let's say, law enforcement, uh, where uh, facial recognition 
for example, can be used and misused. We've seen that already. This was a, a story about two years ago of a company um, providing services to law enforcement. Um, are you in favor of, you said that within the DOD, you guys have regulation to use this AI assurance. Do you believe that this should be at least a model like that should be implemented elsewhere, regulated elsewhere? Uh, probably. And, and that's a really hard question to answer without having a specific use case, right? Because as a general rule, uh, regulation is kind of viewed as something that could potentially stifle innovation, right, of American industry. And that's the last thing we want to do. Uh, but there are certainly some applications like law enforcement you just mentioned um, where assurance does become really important. Another good example is the financial industry, right? And, and loans and having AI kind of uh, help people figure out to whom they can, they should loan money and to whom they shouldn't. They were kind of uh, known racial biases, right? That existed in, in that kind of an application. And so now there are laws uh, that help you take care of that particular use case, at least I think in the, in the state of New York. Um, and I, and I think one of your other speakers on your on your podcast, I think it was Alex Engler, also mentioned this. Um, and I think it's a very valid point that by creating targeted legislation and kind of starting to mitigate these specific cases as they come up, you get a better idea of what more general legislation might be required. So we've covered a lot of ground already, um, and it's it's just about time to wrap up. So any any last thoughts that you'd like to get out and share? With, with our audience about the, the topic of AI assurance? Just that, um, you know, it's an incredibly important uh, set of issues. Uh, as our UK colleagues uh, stated in their AI assurance uh, biscuit book, as they call it, uh, it's really a key to safely unlock the potential uh, of this technology. I really like the way that they described it. Um, and my wish and my hope um, and certainly our practice uh, at Hopkins APL and in the DOD is the AI assurance charts being incorporated in the very beginning and through deployment um, of AI-enabled systems. So that it's not an afterthought, uh, but rather um, an effective kind of partner in developing and fielding and maintaining that kind of technology. That's great. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.